it's not like, well, they're just a puppy and the world is big and the world is scary. And as they get older, they'll get over it, right? Um, so I think giving people permission to go above and beyond seeking out professional help before they realize it, you know, oh, this is just, my dog is this way as an adult or as an adolescent, right? Um, you're gonna save yourself a lot of heartache that way and your, your dog as well. We love dogs, but man is it hard work sorting through all the misconceptions and misunderstandings that we have about them. It is difficult to know where to turn to for good advice. Hi, I'm Renee Rhodes, the virtual dog training and behavior specialist behind rplusdogs.com. On this show, I talk to other dog professionals and guardians to help you understand your dog better, to do better for them. Think of it as couples counseling, for one. If you are looking to learn more about how to advocate, empower, and help your dog live the best life possible, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Dog Logical. So I wanted to give, because um, there's some common themes, right, when it comes to kind of socialization and and fear and what mm -hmm. to do and what not to do. So I thought it would be a good idea based on, because you're just talking about how to address and, you know, instilling certain behaviors. I thought it would be a good idea to present maybe two or three scenarios that are common scenarios of how people address socializing their dog. And maybe you could give, I want to say the appropriate, but we're using appropriate in air quotes because obviously that depends sure. on the individual dog and not offering any advice necessarily, just more talking on the subject, asterisk. <laughs> so <laughs> one presented idea is to help your dog or your puppy socialize with humans and be friendly with humans that you should have humans give your dog a treat when you're out. So mm, yes. how do you feel about that? And what would you say would be a healthy alternative to doing that kind of training? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is to determine whether or not your puppy is afraid of new people and how afraid are they? At what distance from that new person do they start to really exhibit some of those stress signals? If you can get your puppy within a distance of that new person, then that person can toss them a treat. Toss them, not hand them, but toss them a treat. Then it is appropriate to approach that person have that person toss them cookies from a distance without approaching your puppy, your fearful stranger danger puppy. Um, we don't want them to lean forward and hand your puppy a treat to their nose. That puts a lot of pressure on your dog to approach something that's scary in order to get something really want. So even the most food motivated dogs, if they're very fearful of a person, they will still approach that person, take that treat and then jump away. Sometimes start barking at them after that. 
Um, and that is building conflict in the dog. So you start to get a dog that feels even more conflicted about seeing that new person. So my first suggestion, which is the easiest for most dog guardians to, to reproduce without thorough instruction, is to ask your helper to preload them with treats without your puppy so you don't have to pop your puppy's bubble like we say. Um, preload them with treats, ask them to stand sideways, which is less confrontational than hips and shoulders square to your puppy. You're gonna ask them not to give your puppy eye contact and you're gonna ask them to toss a behind your puppy so that they are again, same concept in reinforcement. Oh, new person equals food. New people tend to have food, that's great. And I also get reinforcement from moving away from them to collect that treat. That's going to make them feel more and more comfortable over time with seeing new people. Now, if your puppy's threshold bubble is really, really big, meaning you can't get within treat tossing range of that person without your puppy exhibiting extreme calming signals, uh, signs of stress, we'll say, then it's more appropriate to do that lat method that I described before of just rewarding your puppy for looking at and observing the person from a distance, okay? And before I mentioned marking and treating, so using a clicker, capturing the moment where your dog locks eyes on that stimulus, on that person, click and feed. Every time they look at the person again, click and feed. Again, this is going to help to build positive associations with that person. And it's gonna to help to teach them to turn and look at you when they see a person and to ask, to lean on you for more guidance in that situation. Fantastic. What I would say as our next scenario is dogs who are uncomfortable with the car. So puppies that may be drooling or showing um, signs mm. that they don't wanna get in the car or generally kind of pancaking. So going flat to the, the bottom of the car, how would you, instead of kind of just, well, I think most of the advice that you kind of see is the dog will get used to it. So take short trips frequently and the puppy will eventually get used to riding in the car. So how do you feel about that one? And what would you say as an alternative? I love this question because it's such an issue right now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> these little pandem pandemic puppies have hardly ever been in a car, if ever, and suddenly they're almost adolescents and they're, they're in a car <laughs> taking a trip to the beach and they're panicking because that's a completely novel experience. They have no history with it. Um, so when it comes to socialization, with all things, you can do the same method with a bathtub, for example. We wanna think about splitting the event into tiny achievable steps. So the goal here is for your dog to load into the car and to go on a drive, right? 
what are some ways in which you could split up all of the things that lead up to the car pulling out from drive and build positive associations with one of those steps at a time. So depending on the level of anxiety your puppy has about the car, the first one might be just doing little training sessions near the car, outside of the car, not even in the car. Um, teaching your puppy to do a little nose target onto the car door um, or taking some treats just scattered around the car. So your puppy starts to go, ooh, we're going towards that thing. Um, that good things happen next to that thing. And then you could work on turning the car itself into a training space. So without the car being on, can you sit in the back seat with your puppy and work on settling on their magic mat, right? Um, can we practice simple known behaviors that your dog loves to do in that space? Can we turn it into a space much like we should be doing with crate training where all, they get all kinds of good stuff in that space. They're special chews, they get new toys in there. And then this whole time we're watching their body language change for the better. So we're starting to see less stress signals. The dog is starting to exhibit looser, wigglier body language. And as they grow more comfortable, we can take a new step. So maybe the next step would be just turning the car on, right? So we do all the same things, but now the engine's running. And then the next step from there might be asking a helper to drive your car while you continue with your little training session in the back of the car. You're sitting back there with your puppy. And then we can maybe talk about progressing into if, if you're likely to be driving the car by yourself with your puppy, can you either get a little remote treat dispenser so that you can safely drive while dispensing your dog's treats, right? And if not, can you give them a Kong stuffed with something awesome, like wet dog food? And just take a drive around the block, right? So all of these training sessions, not only do we wanna split them into little steps towards that, that work towards that end goal, but we have to accept that it is highly unlikely that it's going to be appropriate to take more than one step right, in one session. So you may need to start with training games next to the car for a week or two, once daily, you do a visit for two minutes, two minutes max, hanging out by the car, having a cookie party, really fun times, and then you go inside, right? Leave them wanting more. That's part of that quality, not quantity concept. Leave your puppy wanting more when it comes to training. They only have so much capacity, brain power at this age anyways. Any training session exceeding two to five minutes max is going to be too much, right? It doesn't matter how great your treats are, they're gonna get burnt out. So small steps, split up the event and train them at that first stair step several times over the course of a week or two, depending on how their body language is progressing, depending on what they're communicating to you. 
um, and keep those training sessions really short. So you can, like I said, that's the same, essentially the same process you would do with crate training. It's the same process that I did with my um, husky puppy who was absolutely terrified of water. Um, we did that for her bath and now she, she loves jumping into the bath, but that only was possible because I let her move at her own pace. I think the two things that I absolutely loved from what you just said, which was perfect, um, was the known behavior. So asking your dog to do known behaviors, because not only is that a comfort level thing, but also it's a great indicator of how that dog is feeling because, you know, something as simple as maybe a down or, you know, a, a nose touch. If that's something that your puppy does readily and they're not prepared to do that, or they seem confused, it's a great kind of red flag to go, oh, you're, you're over, you know, you're over threshold. This is too much for you. So can we do it outside of the car? Can we do it away from the car? So it's a good kind of barometer to see as well, you know, where your puppy's at and if that's, if that's enough for them. Um, and the other thing that I loved was when you mentioned about, I just forgot it. <laughs> God. I know, right? Where do those little thoughts go, right? Ooh. When we lose them. <laughs> like, will we find them one day? Just a little jar of <laughs> forgotten thoughts that we can reflect on later in life. <laughs> I, I just need a second. I just remembered. Well, well, I, I would like to say that I'm so happy you brought up just that. Um, that piece about the known behaviors being a barometer for how your puppy is feeling is that that is such an easy way for someone who isn't feeling confident in their ability to read their puppy's body language. That's a really easy way for them to gauge how their puppy is feeling, right? And I think the first person that I heard talk about it that way was Shirag Patel in this aggression seminar he was teaching. And I've used it ever since. I used it in our reactive dog classes at the Oregon Humane Society. Before we do anything with the dogs, they come outside from their barrier one at a time. And I say, ask your dog to do a known behavior. And then I give them the disclaimer that if your dog can't do it, don't have a disobedient dog. Your dog's not misbehaving. This isn't a behavior issue. It is just a barometer for how your dog is feeling. If you're stressed, your logical brain is compromised. So you can't perform simple tasks. And that's such an aha moment for people. Um, and I'm so happy you brought that up because I think that even, even for the least educated uh, or well-studied dog guardian, they can at least do that. If, if your puppy can't do that, nose target to your hand, what does that tell you? Oh, they're probably pretty stressed. So how can I adjust the environment so that you're feeling more comfortable? I loved that. Thank you. I, I remember the second part now. Um, was that we, to take everything within the dog's pace because we are, as humans, I feel like we get a taste of, oh, that was good. Oh, you did that really well. Can I just push it a little bit? 
<laughs> you know, that's where we <laughs> because even I, I'm a human being. I mean, you know, I push things sometimes. Yeah. And, and even in, you know, those scenarios, we just, we want, we just want a little bit more, just a little bit more. So mm-hmm. absolutely. When you were saying about, you know, two minutes is enough. It's, it's getting people to realize that it doesn't have to be, um, you know, 30 minutes of you working on car stuff. First thing in the morning, if you feel up to it, have your cup of coffee and go work on your car stuff. Yes. You know, pajamas, you're in your driveway, who Love cares? It. But your cup of coffee, yep. you know, a little time to cool, you're going to drink it. You can kind of entertain the puppy in that time. And then you go back inside. It's, it's nothing really when you break it down like that. Yep, absolutely. And that, you know, that's such, such a thing. So I, I, I always tell my clients that part of, I think part of the reason we do that, right? We're so obsessed with progress. <laughs> um, well, it is reinforcing, right? To mm-hmm. achieve certain goals. But in general, we are so goal oriented as a society that we're, it's kind of wired in us to just push it, to push it to the next step, to get closer to that goal, right? Um, and we measure success in giant leaps of, you know, we haven't achieved anything until we've achieved that goal. So I try and say to my clients, let's work on becoming less goal oriented and start to become more process oriented. And if we can shift our mindset there, then we're going to achieve those goals more efficiently because we're enjoying that journey. And we're actually, again, paying attention to what's actually happening with our dogs. And we're not, our vision getting clouded by our own lens of self-doubt and, you know, fatigue of, of not achieving that goal. Cause that's the hardest part of raising a puppy. There is no linear learning that, that you're going to get to enjoy through this experience. <laughs> the moment you think you've achieved a goal, your puppy's going to hit a new developmental period and everything's going to feel like it fell apart and that you never did anything to proactively at all. <laughs> so we, we do want to get try and shift away from that goal-oriented mentality. Otherwise, you're going to feel let down, even if you know it's not your puppy's fault, you're going to feel emotionally um, discouraged just due to the pressures that you're putting on yourself. Um, So that's my, that's just something that popped into my head when you said all that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's you know, I always give a little, a, a little wirely smile during puppy class when, you know, we talk about adolescence because it's, you know, it's coming and it's just like, yep. you know, don't, don't get too fixated on all these cues because, you know, it's coming. <laughs> so yeah, there's nothing <laughs> like, there's nothing like adolescence to help you learn to let go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like raising an adolescent dog to help you learn to live in the moment and take it day by day. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So we've been talking about, you know, clients and what we say to our clients and, you know, so 
I just want to know from your perspective, what is the right time to get a professional involved when we're, you know, if you say you have a puppy or you're thinking about getting a puppy or, you know, all of those time periods around um, the joy of, of, you know, welcoming a puppy into your life, when is the right time to get a professional involved in your opinion? Right away. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's like, I'm serious when I say that because even as a professional trainer, if I were to get a puppy today, I would hire a colleague to coach me. And the reason for that, and maybe this is just that um, kind of puppy freeze syndrome that we get as professionals where we're like, I'm gonna ruin my puppy, I know too much. Um, (laughs) But I, I mean, honestly, it's impossible to be unbiased about your own dog. Um, And so if you have the funds and the emotional bank account for it as well, just hire a professional you really trust to help be your guide and to be your sounding board if nothing else. Um, so, So that's the first way I'll answer that question. The second way, which is I think what you're really asking is like, how do we know when, when we need to involve like a veterinary behaviorist or you know, how do we know when we actually truly have an out of the box puppy who is suffering from an abnormal level of fear and anxiety. And if we do, hiring the help of a professional is extremely important. So again, I think it goes back to you know, if you're working with your puppy on socialization and you feel like you're, you're really well educated and you're, you're managing your dog's stress threshold, you're advocating for them and you feel like you're doing all these things right, but you're still, you're not seeing much progress and that threshold isn't decreasing at all. Your dog's extremely sensitive to sounds or I would even say if your puppy is really sensitive and fearful to a myriad of novel experiences. So they, they're, um, they startle at sounds, they startle awake, they startle at any change in the environment. They um, are constantly exhibiting those body language cues that indicate anxiety. Maybe they, they also resource guard and you're seeing, a, or they, and they have separation related disorders. Um, that is when you definitely want to bring in a veterinary behaviorist in my opinion, because again, puppies do not come to us as a blank slate and genetics are really strong, right? So genetic traits may come through that you need a little help, you know, working through, but there are puppies that come into this world as anxious puppies because their mother was anxious. Their mother had experienced a traumatic event while they were in the womb. And maybe they just come from a long line of extremely anxious dogs who weren't bred for temperament. And that isn't something that you can just train away. So It's common for young, young puppies, like eight weeks to 
I would say like, and I'm open to your opinion on this, of course, but like, wouldn't you say that it's like eight to 11, 10, 11 weeks, it's common to see some pretty extreme fear reactions until they're start, because they're, when you first adopt a puppy, they're stressed, no matter how careful you are. That's a huge life change coming into your world, being pulled away from their litter, from mother. So when I work with, when I do puppy social, it's very normal to me for that puppy's first two to three puppy socials for them to cower under the chair, under a chair for most of that, those first two to three um, socials. But we should start to see them break out of the sh their shell quicker and quicker each time. And by that third one, they should be in enjoying interacting with the environment in some way or form. Um, so it's not abnormal for a very young puppy to, to be fearful, but what we're looking for again is that their recovery time after they startle, after they exhibit that stress response gets less and less. And if you're not seeing that um, recovery time decrease, right, then it's time to hire a specialist. It's time to hire someone who can give your puppy more support or give you the support and the knowledge you need to support your puppy. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, you're right. You know, when I've had younger puppies in, in the classes, um, when I was doing more in-person work, you know, there was almost always at least one who was highly, at least one highly fearful. So like, you know, we're having to set up the environment to make sure that they have a safe space and, you know, educating yep. the, the human about, it's okay if your dog doesn't want to, you know, involve themselves. It's okay if your dog sits it out. It's okay if your dog is barking. It's fine. You know, nobody, nobody is thinking any less of you. Um, but also, yeah. I don't think people understand how difficult it is to manage successfully and appropriately um, puppy interactions because I know that. Yeah. In my in-person classes, there were, you know, maybe not every week in a six-week course, not every week were the dogs interacting with each other. And if they were interacting, it was, you know, a few minutes at a time. At the end of those few mm -hmm. minutes, I am sweating. I am panting. I am making sure that all the puppies are good because I've done so many consent tests or I've been watching all of the puppies and asking people to do consent tests that I'm exhausted. And, you know, to have that <laughs> and then be like, yes, you know, that's how many times you would do the consent. Yes, that is what the behavior that, you know, it's, it's more of a, for me, those sessions have always been education for the human. So like, yes, the puppies are playing, but how much are we learning from the me body too. language? And it's, it's hard. Yeah. I don't think people appreciate it. Yeah. So when people contact me for socialization, quote unquote. I then have a, you know, I have a, a situation where I always have to explain to them, look, like what you're expecting to happen is not what's going to happen. This is what happens. And generally 99% of the time I'm trying to help the puppies ignore each other. Um, it's yes. just that 1% <laughs> that everybody comes for. Yep. <laughs> yep. But I thought yeah, and that's really what a well-socialized dog will do. 
right? Yeah. A well-socialized adult dog will pass another dog on the street and maybe, you know, do the equivalent of a head nod, like a little butt sniff, hey, what's up? And then keep moving on. They're not overly excited to get get to that dog because they're so they they're so social, right? And they're not fearful. It's just like a, a natural, you know, hey, what's up? <laughs> We're just gonna keep, I like keep that doing nod. our thing. I think that's nice. Like, you good? Good. Little canine head nod. Yeah. <laughs> little, little butt sniff and move on. Um, but yeah, and I think that's something else we should just mention is is that content consent test, right? So again, when you're you're not sure about your read on your dog's body language, when it comes to dog dog play, remove both puppies from each other, gently take them by by their chest area and and hold them back for a second or redirect them to a different area of the room for three seconds. And if they immediately return to one another, it is likely that they're having a pretty good time and that both puppies are consenting to that interaction. And you can do the same thing with petting, right? So your puppy put, put your hands low by your knees, not stretched out in front of you, but kind of imagine like a, a bit of a squatting down posture and your wrists are against your knees with your palms out and you give your puppy about a three second pet and then you stop. What does your puppy do? Does your puppy walk away? If they do, they're done with that interaction. If they return or lean into you or paw you or nudge you with their nose, try another three seconds, right? So that's a good way to gauge how they're feeling. And again, to give them, help them understand that they, they can turn off and on cert certain interactions. I think that's a good one. Absolutely. And when I was saying, when I asked the question before about getting a professional involved, I, I actually meant the first one. So like, you know, when you get a puppy, oh, when, but <laughs> I love that you mentioned the second part because that is, that's equally important. So, you know, when we're seeing yeah. maladaptive behaviors with puppies or, you know, the behaviors that don't seem to um, have that recovery time, like it, it should, or how we assume that it should, you know, when is that appropriate time? Because hopefully, you know, hopefully you already have the trainer involved. You think I'm getting a puppy. Yeah. I need to get myself, you know, a good support system. Cause it's not all about, like we were saying before, it's not all about the training. It is such a huge mm -hmm. support system. And a lot of, um, I know a lot of my clients, you might agree with this. Sometimes they just like someone that they can bounce ideas and questions off instead of searching yeah. on Dr. Google, you know, and getting lots of oh, different yeah. variables, they can just go, I really wanted to ask you, and then I can give them the answer. So just having that exactly. is good for, for having a professional on board, but equally, you know, if you're working with someone like one of us and we're seeing these behaviors, we can identify that much quicker and say, you know, hey, I think it might be a good idea to possibly have a consultation with a veterinary behaviorist because of X, Y, Z. So you yeah. overall are getting expedited into, you know, that lane directing towards, you know, getting your puppy quicker help um, and, you know, potentially even salvaging a relationship with 
what could be a very challenging situation. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the common misconception is that, well, it's just a puppy. So he's going to grow out of it. Right. Well, of course he's squirmy when I touch his paws. He's a puppy. He's going to grow out of it. And a large part of what we do is normalizing common puppy behaviors, right? So yes, your puppy is going to chew on your hands until we show them a different way to interact with hands. And that is a normal puppy behavior, but it's not like if we don't guide them and give them some um, some information, some structure around what to do instead. It's not like they're just going to become adults and no longer nip at your hands, right? And so the same is true for a fearful puppy. It's not like, well, they're just a puppy and the world is big and the world is scary. And as they get older, they'll get over it, right? Um, so I think giving people permission to go above and beyond seeking out professional help before they realize it you know, oh, this is just, my dog is this way as an adult or as an adolescent, right? Um, you're going to save yourself a lot of heartache that way and your your dog as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially when it comes to those, those more problematic behaviors, because they don't they don't tend to go away. They tend to increase <laughs> and you're ending up with yeah, maybe they a do. puppy who's applying a bit of pressure and maybe, you know, piercing the skin a little bit or, you know, and I think I've, I personally have had a lot of clients who have said the classic, we thought he would just grow out of it. And lo and behold, yeah. growing out of it, grow into it. And now we're dealing with yes. behavior that's been practiced <laughs> for several months, if not more than a year. Um, and we're dealing with a different, a different behavior pattern now, something that's well-established. So it's even harder exactly. to kind of, you know, modify that in a way that's going to be easy or uh, less time consuming than if you got a hold of someone yeah. early on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. I think, uh, you know, even hiring someone, gosh, don't you love it when you get the clients that are like, I'm going to be getting a puppy in maybe three months time. Would you, can I, can I do a consultation? I'm like, you can be my client forever. (laughs) (laughs) You're now best friends. (laughs) You're reaching out even prior to getting the puppy. I'm like, please please work with me. That, that yeah. says so much about a person. Absolutely. Um, no, and, I you know, that agree. also comes with the disclaimer of, you know, even if you're, you know, an all-star dog guardian and you want to do everything right and you want to do well by your puppy, I think it's also worth saying that no matter how much intention you put into socialization, into training your puppy, that there are going to be things that you can't control and that it's not your fault, <laughs> right? That's, that's important for people to recognize too, because if you're putting everything into it, you've got your team of profession, professionals, you've got your village and you're doing the best you're, you can, but you know things still happen, that's normal. These are sentient, living, you know, breathing individuals with 
so much history that is not um, in our control, right? Long lineage of genetics and um, and hormones and chemicals at play prior to that puppy even coming into this world. Absolutely. I think people don't don't appreciate that when you welcome a dog into your life that there will be compromise and there's nothing yeah. wrong with that at all. That is just every part of every relationship that anyone ever has. Even if you've been born into a family, there is always compromise to be had. Um, and that makes yeah. the ability to have that flexibility to be someone who does compromise and has the best intentions and, you know, optimal welfare in mind. That to me is, you know, the, the gold standard. There will always be something, but how much can you compromise on that? And how willing are you to compromise on it? Um, and like we were saying before, you know, that individual relationship, it'll be just because it's a dog doesn't mean it's going to be the same compromise or the same situation or relationship that you had previously. So coming to it with a really open mind is something that I really appreciate from, from clients or from dog guardians in general is just, you know, this is my my new dog and I'm looking forward to whatever our relationship brings to each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And that's something we should be doing with any relationship we form in the world with, with friends, with partners, with colleagues, right. We have to give, you know, it's always more effective to give each other space to be an individual and to cope with things in different ways and to interact with the world in different ways. And if we can be flexible and not put too many expectations on our dogs, on each other, it just gives everybody room to be more successful. And if there's, you know, one thing that has taught me that above all else, it is dog training. It's working with dogs and learning we can learn so much about our own behavior through observing and interacting with our dogs. They really, they really are our greatest teachers if we're flexible and open to learning. Absolutely. I just want to thank you, Brie, for having this conversation with me. I hope that people have a lot of really nice takeaways from this because I think there are lots of gems in this conversation. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's it's really fun to talk about puppies um, <laughs> during during this time when it seems like I only have reactivity clients right now, which again I totally love. But it's really sweet to to talk with you about how we can actually get ahead of the curve and maybe prevent these dogs from having to come and work with me on their fear and reactivity issues. So that's really the goal, isn't it? It is absolutely. And that's, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation was that might take the edge off, you know? So maybe by the time that they do come to one of us that we've been practicing this or, you know, I do a lot of social media stuff and I know you do some great social media stuff too, mm -hmm. where I get people who say, I've, you know, I saw your post about this and I've been trying it and it's really made a difference. And maybe that, that dog never yeah. needs to come and see me, but there's been some, you know, ripple effect on that. And 
I, I, that's, you know, also what I hope from, from this conversation is that there are little gems that they take away and, and maybe think a little bit more about how to approach some of those interactions because, you know, the behavior that they have as puppies, that's really hard. It has such residual effects. So the way that we address these behaviors is, is more critical than I think a lot of people realize. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Renee, it's been so such a joy chatting with you. Really, I thank you for this opportunity. Um, and I look forward to more conversations in the future. Absolutely. I'd love to do, maybe we should do a reactive one. That would be quite fun. That's a, that's a we good We should, a little follow-up. <laughs> little follow-up. Now, if you didn't listen to us okay, last so. time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So tell us where you'll, can find you'll, you. interesting thing is they'll find a lot of parallels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I love it. Um, <laughs> um, so tell us where we can find you on social media. Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. So you can find me um, with the at noble wolf tag. Um, and that's woof as in the sound dog makes, not wolf <laughs> as in, you know, the, the canine lupus. So <laughs> at Noble Woof. And then you can find my website, which is www.noblewoof.com. Um, and where else can you find me? You can find me on Facebook too, but I'm less active there. It pretty much just feeds from my Instagram. So come find me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you guys. I'd love to hear what you think about the, what we had to say today. Absolutely. And I will definitely supply those tags as well so that people can, can come and find you. Thank you so much.